And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Very excited today to be talking about fueling fan engagement. And uh, I think we're going to be talking about some racing today, which sounds like a fun topic. Um, We're with Ross Fruin and his company, which is called Grid Rival. Um, Excited to learn more about that today. Um, Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of the Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably that only works directly for you. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. Ross, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna guess were you at the Formula One race the other day in I Las was. Vegas? Were you? I knew I knew you were gonna say you were there. Uh, How not was Las that? Vegas. I, I'm not going to Vegas. Vegas is a couple weeks out, um, but the USGP in Austin was last week. Um, oh, yeah, it was amazing. Um, I've been this is my seventh year actually, and uh, our team goes now. We get a big uh, 45 foot motorhome that we park out there along the back straight at Cirque of the Americas and. Um, we're there the whole, almost the whole week from Wednesday to, to the end of the day, Sunday, and uh, kind of do some activation stuff. And it's usually obviously a, a really huge networking and business development opportunity for us. So, um, and then of course there is, there is the race, uh, which is always exciting to watch as well. Well, so tell me a little more about what you what you guys do and, and how did you get into this? How did, how did you get into creating software for racing? Yeah, we, so one of the things that you will find fairly consistently amongst motorsports fans is a lot of them are not traditional sports fans. Um, and okay. that was, that was very much how I was growing up. And so as a result, I always saw my friends playing season long fantasy football and, and March madness and all of these kind of tools, if you will, that elevated the interest or excitement of some of the sports that they really liked. And it also created, you know, if you've ever done any sort of fantasy league, um, you know, it, it innately creates this level of camaraderie and community and kind of smack talk and all these things that yeah. just, and so as, as a, as a race fan, my whole life and <clears throat> kind of like a, a lesser of a traditional sports fan, I never was able to participate and eventually got sick of it and wondered why nothing like this existed for some of the sports that I loved, which, uh, I, I really enjoy. There's not a lot of motorsports that I don't enjoy, um, Formula One is obviously the top of the list. I, I've, you know, I started watching it when I was in, in my teens. And so eventually I just kind of got, I got sick of it and I was running, my last company was actually totally unrelated, um, in the media space and started this as a side project, uh, okay. purely with, with, with almost no, I would say almost no business intention. So it, it was literally to scratch an itch I had to, okay. to, to play season long fantasy Formula One. Uh, and the very long story short is created the game launched in 2017. It was desktop web only early worked on a mobile phone. Uh, okay. we ended up signing up about 20,000 users the first week that it was online. And, um, 
yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it, but for obvious reasons, it made me start to pay a lot more attention to what we had just maybe accidentally done um, and kind of went from there. So was your goal originally just to, like you were just going to use it with five of your buddies or something? It was going to be kind of just something fun? Uh, The goal was, um, the goal was, I mean, I I definitely had some ambition around growth and the audience. You know, I wanted to put something into the world that I thought had some opportunity. I just didn't exactly know what that was. Um, It didn't matter at the time. Uh, and, And so it was definitely built with the intention of both satisfying a craving that I had, but also being able to, to scale and, and add other users, you know, to, to be able to come and play it. So how did you get those first users? Yeah. So it was almost exclusively through uh, direct response marketing. So my, my last company was a media buying agency and we managed, okay. you know, one of the earlier companies that managed um, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, um, that space has very much changed since I've left it five years ago. But uh you know, back then it was, if you were really technically gifted in that space, um, you could be very, very effective. And so we were, I think that first year we launched, we spent, you know, 10 or 15,000 bucks on ads. And that's how we got the initial 20, 25,000 players. And so, you know, we were acquiring users at 60 to 80 cents back then, which yeah. is crazy, crazy to think about. But um, yeah, so that's how the initial group came. And then one of the things that we found that really made the product enticing um, it, you know, in the sports betting space, customer acquisition costs are just outrageous. Um, and I, I dabbled in it enough to understand that back then. Um, but one of the, one of the dynamics that we found very quickly was that almost every single user that we acquired through some sort of, you know, paid, earned, whatever media, any investment that we made, uh, would result in one other user that was created by that person. So they'd invite people and yeah, yeah that makes total sense yeah so and th- and that has stayed consistent um and as the product has developed and as have we as we've been able to invest you know into the actual mechanisms that allow that stuff to happen easier uh that referral and viral growth rate has continued to to improve over the years so tell us a little more about the experience of how people use this so i'm watching formula one am i creating a team and playing against my niece is this is it also has some form of gambling built into it? Tell us a little more about like how people yeah, use this. For sure. So there's there's kind of like two primary buckets. So there's a free play product, which is our league game. That's a product that is not monetized. Um, we are unlikely to ever monetize it because we really look at it as kind of the driver of demand and engagement on the application. When people play season-long fantasy leagues, they're engaged for you know near the entirety of the season. They're coming back to the product every single week. And so we actually look at that as the core tool and product to ultimately get people interested in, in some of our paid games, um, which are not legally considered sports betting in the United States. They're considered fantasy sports. Okay. And we have, we have two, we have two primary products in that category. So one is, um, I would say they both fit into the category of daily fantasy sports, but one is more of a traditional kind of, um, draft style game where, uh, you, you're in a pool of other players. Maybe it's two people, maybe it's a thousand and there's an entry fee associated with it. Maybe it's $3 could be, you know, hundreds of dollars and you compete with other players for a chunk of, of the prize. Okay. Um, so, so that's game one. We are in beta with another game that we're waiting to launch. That's um, a little bit opposite and much more simple where you basically build a lineup of um, over or under or head to head matchup 
picks, like two okay. two driver matchups, like who who's going to finish, you know, higher, or who will have better qualifying position, this guy or that guy. So almost no learning curve to do that game. And then the way it works is, you know, depending on how many of those get correct, you you actually get a payout. That's a multiple of your entry fee. And that game is against grid rival versus against other players. Okay. Um, so both those kind of fit in the category of fantasy sports. But yeah, there's 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 kind of two core types of product. Um, and I think there's very different players for each with, with some obvious overlap. Um, I think, we, we, you know, we have a, a pool of players that, don't actually do our season long game. And then we have a lot of players over 350,000 at this point have registered on our season long game. And then there's obviously, you know, the, the, really the target audience for us is that overlap of the people that are playing season long and, you know, have interest in, in actually competing with real money. Well, in fantasy sports of all kind has to really help with fan engagement, right? Like I've, and I've done a, a tiny I've never done a lot of fantasy stuff. I've done like a tiny, tiny amount of like using DraftKings or FanDuel or one of those kinds of things. Like I bet the Chiefs would score, you know, a touchdown on the first drive or some crap like that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made it more exciting to watch the game. Like, oh, are they gonna do it? Are they gonna be ahead at halftime by six points or whatever it is? Yeah, for sure. And, and I would imagine there's gotta be a lot of studies that show that that really increases engagement, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the number one reason why you saw early on large investments from sports leagues themselves into the two companies that you mentioned. Um, I think uh, as an example in our industry, NASCAR is one of the only motorsports leagues that I know of right now that actually employs two guys that I'm pretty close with whose sole job is, you know, building the NASCAR sports betting audience. And when you talk to them about their goals for that division of the business, um, revenue is not necessarily something that is is talked about a lot. It doesn't mean it's not important. It is. But I think the reason they're focused on it is because they know, just like you said, you know, if somebody has money on the line on a specific driver at some race that they would otherwise never care about, um, the likelihood that they're going to stay in tune for in NASCAR the entirety four hours of an event um, yeah. dur- during the broadcast uh, is um, exponentially more likely. So I really think of real, the category of, I'll just call it the, the competitive entertainment category to, to include, you know, even free play season long fantasy, um, paid daily fantasy. And then a, a, another category, which you're referring to is more traditional sports betting, um, as really an entertainment tool yeah. more than a, um, you know, means of, uh, participation and and ability to to earn money. I think there's a very small percentages of overall sports bettors who are who are that diehard. I think it's uh, overwhelming majority of people who are playing as a form of entertainment, which I think makes total sense. And I don't think that's really a problem, right? It's not like one of my family members that has like a major gambling addiction. <laughs> that's a whole yeah. different problem. But sure. you know, spend spend five bucks to bet my niece that so-and-so would win a race or whatever might be fun. And then I can ridicule her for the next week if I win. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you guys only do motorsports. Yeah. So we, um, you know, that, that was, I'd like to think that I, you know, orchestrated this all from the beginning and I saw all this stuff coming and, and to some degree there was, there were small elements where I saw opportunities, but um, by and large, like I said, it started to kind of scratch an itch I had. And then 
the both of the the intersection of those industries, so motorsports and then sports betting, started to become at the same time very very compelling. So I knew that there was an underinvestment in motorsports. I knew that motorsports in general as a category was really behind when it came to anything related to digital to fan engagement. And I say this putting myself in the position of you know being in 2017 and 18, that was very much the case. Um, Formula One, as you may or may not know, got acquired in 2017 by a stateside company called Liberty Media, who has done an absolutely tremendous job at reinvigorating that brand. And I think you're starting to see things happen similarly with NASCAR, with IndyCar. So there's kind of this like resurgence of growth amongst the motorsports audience. At the same time, um, sports betting was... uh, legalized, so to speak, in 2018 through the repeal of a law called the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, which essentially allowed states to now create laws that regulated sports betting. And so those two things were happening at the same time. And we kind of just really saw it as an opportunity to to capture an audience that was really underserved. Um, And it still is today, you know, because this is a heavily regulated industry, and you know, regular regulatory stuff happens slowly, so to speak. We're mm. we're we're four years post um, that bill PASPA being repealed, and you still see the majority of focus amongst the major operators in this country: FanDuel, DraftKings, you know, BetMGM, Caesars, focused tremendous amounts of energy on the NFL and the NBA, right, um, and some other traditional sports, and rightfully so. It's where the most amount of people today are placing wagers. I think motorsports and other niche sports are way, way more nascent. But um, when we looked at the opportunities and we did the market research, uh, we found that the motorsports audience was large enough by itself, you know, to create a venture scalable business with obviously a lot of assumptions. The, The primary one being that it will over time become an audience that bets um, as a percentage of of the overall audience that that participates with real money games in a similar fashion that people with traditional sports have. So that's going to take time. And that's ultimately the investment that all of our, um, all of our investors have made into the business is that we're going to be the brand that's able to figure out how to convert those folks. So are, do you guys have competitors that do this in motorsports? Um, <clears throat> Kind of depends on how you find it. So we don't have a direct competitor, meaning there's there's not anyone to date that's focused purely on real money gaming, you know, competitive entertainment for just the motorsports audience. Um, okay. There's certainly overlap. So kind of some examples like on the free play game side, you know, Formula One and NASCAR have their own season long fantasy league games. Okay. So, so we kind of we kind of compete with them for free users. I actually think it's a, a positive thing because they're using their first party audience to expose people to these types of games. And, and ultimately yeah. when people want more, they seek it. Um, yeah. On the other side, you know, there are more and more places like FanDuel and DraftKings where you can kind of, where there is some lines and, and availability to wager on sports like Formula One and NASCAR, because those are just the two largest in the motorsport space, but um, not necessarily in an authentic way. And then certainly when you reach outside of, some of those major sports, it's really, really hard to find a lot of opportunities to participate in not only an authentic way, but sometimes even at all. Like if you're wanting to, you know, bet on NHAR drag racing or Formula E or um, the WeatherTech series in, in IMSA, like it's, I, I 
I don't even know that there's a lot of places that that have data for that. Yeah, and I would imagine you have a totally different user experience too. You know, very focused sure. on racing, so you're gonna have a much better experience, I imagine, as well for those users. Yeah, I mean, I think any um, it's the it's the niche product focus, right? Anytime you're focused in a specific way on a specific audience, I think the value proposition you can deliver is much more unique than somebody who's focused on everyone. I do want to take a minute to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to see what developers are available to join your team today. Um, Please visit fullscale.io to learn more. Well, so Ross, tell me about how did you build the software? Were you, uh, are you technical yourself? Did you have technical co-founders? Like what did you guys have to go through to build this? Yeah, definitely the latter. Um, not technical in the traditional sense. I think I'm a technical person, but I'm not a trained, you know, engineer. So I don't write code. Um, and so uh, it's definitely been a painful part of the journey. Uh, being a non-technical founder, I think early on we hired an agency to build the first MVP before I even had went full time. The start as a side project, which I think yeah. we might have skipped over, but. Um, and then when I did when I did go full time, I I spent um, you know four months after we launched. Uh, it was obvious that going the contractor route, uh, going going the contractor route moving forward was not going to to work. I think to really to to build something to scale and to do it at speed, and um, you really need somebody in that capacity who understands the problem you're solving, who understands the user, who has a certain level of passion. So I. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a couple of months trying to find that person and ultimately did find um, an individual who was able to fill that role for about two and a half years. And then um, just this year, actually, we had to go through quite a difficult transition where original co-founder and CTO kind of just got to a spot where, you know, we needed to bring somebody in who had more business experience, more um, experience running teams and building technology, both at this stage and at scale. And so... Um, brought in a a new CTO that actually started just this June. So uh, just kind of getting going in that direction. That's been very, very beneficial to to the company thus far, but uh, definitely not a technical co-founder. I've had to learn a lot of hard lessons as a result yeah. uh, building a technology company, but um, it's been, it's been a fun journey. And I, I think one where um, in, in any case uh, I will walk away with a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise around you know, building mobile applications and building technology. Well, one question that comes to mind is, you know, looking back, do you wish you had a technical co-founder? Do you think it would have changed things um, a lot for you? Yeah, for sure. I think I think I wish I would have the right technical co-founder. You know, if I could go back, there's I, I think we'd all change some things up, right? If we could go back a few years, um, I think what I would have tried to do is just slowed down and and really spent the time to vet um, a co-founder. I think where we were when I did go find one is more of a position of survival, right? We needed somebody to fill the role. Um, and I think the challenge too, as you get older, um, it's harder and harder. There's, there's a smaller pool of people who can kind of upend their life and leave their job and have no income to come yeah. start a company. And so yes. I, I, I found that that has gotten, you know, as, as I've aged, right. And my cohort of, of people in my community, there's not a lot of them in at this point who could just leave their job, especially ones that have, you know, high income 
to yeah. quit and, and go to a startup. So um, I say that all to say, you know, I don't know if if things would have went any differently if I took a little bit more time or maybe, you know, could have hired a recruiting agency to find somebody. But the reality was, you know, four years ago when that process was taking place, we didn't have, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year yeah. available to pay somebody who is who's worth who's worth what we needed. So um, I look back and I say it is what it is. It's part of the journey. Um, and I feel fortunate that we have made it here despite some of the the, the challenges and, and and having to move people around like that. But yeah, I would I would I would say to answer your question in a much shorter way, if anyone's listening to this as a non-technical co-founder, my absolute encouragement would be to find that partner and take the time to make sure that you guys are on the same page with what you value, both inside and outside of the business, because you know, you're going to be tied at the hip. Um, yeah. I think if you, if, even if you have very different worldviews of, of stuff that are not aligned to business, um, it can cause friction. Um, sometimes it's healthy friction. A lot of times it's not healthy friction. And then, and then inside the business, really make sure that you guys have a um, skill gap that doesn't overlap too much. I think that's one of the things that um, I, in my last business, I had a co-founder as well. And I think there was just too much overlap in what he wanted to do and what I wanted to do. And in the current setting, um, it's been very successful because we both really heavily rely on each other's skills. Uh, and so those are some of the things that I would really encourage anyone going through that um, uh, process to, to consider. Well, it's hard when you have co-founders or even or even other executives in, a, in an early stage company like this that you have to be able to trust and delegate stuff to, right? And so if you have two of you that have competing visions for things, for you're sure. always going to be going to be fighting about those things. So yeah, I mean, if like you, you might have had some of those challenges. <laughs> yeah. And if you guys are having to micromanage each other, you know, as partners, as, uh, and really as executives, more importantly in the, in the organization, I think that, um, it's probably a sign that it's not going the right direction, right? If you guys are not aligned and, and executing on initiatives and, and being proactive and stuff like that, I think, um, it will lead to two issues. So let me ask you this, does, what kind of seasonality do you have with this business? Is this mm -hmm. 12 months of the year or is there certain times of the year where there's no racing at all? Um, well, unlike some of the major traditional sports, um, we are fortunate that it, there is racing 12 months a year. Um, is it, uh, a flat in terms of, of number of fans that are watching? De definitely not because you have series, um, you know, I guess you'd say there's, there's traditional sports 12 months of the year too. It just depends on what, what you consider traditional sport and, but not all of them are the same size and produce the same amount of, you know, mm -hmm. fan engagement as the NFL does. Right. So we're kind of in a similar spot, like formula one, NASCAR, IndyCar, um, some of those major series typically run. If you look at the season, it's like kind of starts mid end of February and goes through some of them end in like late September, some of them go till November. So that's kind of like the core of the motorsport season. And then you have all of these, these series that I would call maybe, um, I don't know, B series, right? They're not the biggest motorsports fan bases in the world, but they do have significant following, right? Millions and millions of viewers, um, that, that go through different parts of the seasons. And a lot of times in the off season, formula E is a great example, um, has a little bit of a different season than formula one and some of the others, I think because they probably have a better time getting viewership during the Formula One off season yeah. and NASCAR yeah. off season, um, Nitro Rally, Travis Travis Pastrana's um, Rallycross um, League, a similar thing, um, Drone Racing League, right? So there's a lot of these kind of 
yeah, again, I feel like second tier sport is doesn't do him justice, but, um, you know, non mainstream, um, motorsport series that do have coverage over the whole year. So, uh, not all of those are live on our platform yet. Um, and it is the intention to, to bring them on. And I think they will be for certain a tool that will help us, um, not completely remove, but, uh, I, I would say diminish the dip that occurs outside of that kind of traditional motorsports schedule that I mentioned of like February to, to November. Um, so we are fortunate that even with those, we really don't have a three month off season. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty small. So I'm curious, what, what was the hardest part about building the software and the, and the technology and the business from a, from, from a technology perspective? And, and the one that I'm thinking about in the, in the back of my head that I wonder if was complicated was you have to have a bunch of data about the stats about who's going to win and sort of creating like a lines for those or whatever. And, um, so I will take all of my answers related to my own growing, you know, growing pains and learning curve around technology and, and technical debt and like the traditional stuff that most tech companies will deal with. And I'll focus it specifically kind of on, on this industry. I think you, you, you nailed it on the head. Um, the biggest challenge that we have to solve in our space is around data. Um, and what I mean by that is, is sports statistics, whether real time or not real time about who finished where and how many overtakes did they have and all that sort of stuff, because that data is what powers everything. What's it's what powers yeah. the, the, the real time data and scoring that comes onto our application when you're, you know, have your TV open and you're watching a game. Um, it's also what gives, um, people on our trading team who write set actual, um, lines for some of our daily fantasy pick'em game that I matched or that I talked about earlier, um, the insight and information to be able to have confidence in, in the lines that we're setting. And so one of the absolute biggest challenges with our space, and I say the motorsports fantasy space versus like traditional sports is if you were starting today, you know, let's say you wanted to go build another one of the, you know, hundredth um, fantasy football applications out there. Um, you'd have a trillion competitors, but it would be very, very easy for you to find data providers that give you every single statistic that's happening during a game in real time. You could deliver that to your application. You could do all sorts of cool stuff with us, with it. Um, for us, one of the biggest challenges we have to to, to overcome is that, um, again, outside some of the, outside of some of those main uh, motorsport series, Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, MotoGP. Um, there's no data provider that's producing that stuff in any sort of significant and meaningful way for us to be able to use. So when we want to go into, um, you know, let's call it drag racing as, as an example, um, that's a very specific problem we're going to solve. I have to solve internally. We're going to have to be able to capture that information somewhere. Um, whether we have people that are on the ground, whether we have people watching TV at the end of the day, a lot lot of these big data providers that do provide companies like ours with this data, um, might be surprising to a lot, but a lot of, a lot of the ways that they create that data is still, you know, they stuff six guys in a room during an NFL game with 12 monitors and they're keying all this stuff in manually. Um, I think some of those things are going to change the future with computer, computer vision and, you know, all the interesting things that are happening there. But, um, that'll be something that has to happen in house for us to ultimately solve it at scale. 
there's a local company here in Kansas City called Shot Tracker that kind of I'll say revolutionized this for basketball. Yeah, no, we're us- we're uh, Shot Tracker and I are in a um, I think two share por- portfolios of investors. So I've actually met yeah. their founder, Davion Davion Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, they do some pretty cool stuff. You know, they track the basketball and knowing if you make shots and all this stuff and right. really incredible, the stats that they could, they could get from, from tracking all that stuff. And obviously yeah. seen that in soccer too, or now, now everybody wears like these weird, like vest under their shirt that tracks them whenever they're sure. on the field. And yeah. So I actually think that's the future of data capture, which is, um, a combination of that and like, and then computer vision. I think like in another 10 years, you're not going to have people, keying this information in, I think, you know, the, the football is going to know that it was just thrown for 17 yards from yeah. one guy to the next guy and which guy it was. And, um, so I, I think it's a really exciting space for sure. Yeah. There's gotta be enough cameras recording all that stuff now that you can use AI and, uh, video recognition stuff to, to do all of that, I would think. So, yeah, it's coming. So you must have, you must have a few people that just watch racing all day. <laughs> We do. Yeah. We've been, we've been fortunate to, um, attract, you know, a certain type of, of team member. Um, there's not a lot of opportunities to work at the intersection of these two spaces. So, um, we, we have a staff that definitely has a handful of folks who, uh, really are excited to be working at the intersection of, of two things that they really love. Um, so there's definitely a lot of racing that, uh, a lot of watching racing that occurs, um, on the grid rival team for sure. Yeah. It's gotta be question number one in an interview. How much do you love racing? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It definitely has been at this stage. I think like, I kind of wonder, you know, at scale, if we're, we're, we're always going to be able to be, um, hiring, you know, diehard patrons and fans. I think at some state, I think at some stage it's going to be tough to, to be that picky, but um, yeah. certainly, certainly at this stage, it's been really critical to get folks on that really understand the mission and, um, enjoy the product. It's like, you know, our, our company, we have 300 employees in the Philippines and yeah, they don't know anything about, most of them don't know anything about the NFL and, or like hockey or like certain, right. you know, American sports. Like they know a lot about basketball. They, they, you know, follow NBA basketball. They're huge fans of that. Um, yeah, like NFL and stuff, they had, have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I'm from sure. I'm from Kansas City, right? So I'm like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and the Taylor Swift drama and all these things. Like, uh, actually, the rumor was Taylor Swift bought a house right next to me in the, in the neighborhood here. No way! Wow. Yeah. So uh, we'll see if she actually moves in. But yeah, they they have no idea. <laughs> They're not NFL fans and stuff. So yeah, it's it, how. Uh, so that brings me to a question, like. How, what part of your audience is outside of the U.S. or is it all U.S. based? No, it's definitely very global. Um, again, because our so our free play product is available everywhere in the world. Okay. Our our real money gaming product is obviously heavily regulated, so that's live in about thirty U.S. states right now, and um, we're hoping to be live in the U.K. Um, sometime around you know Q one Q two of next year. But yeah, the free play game is available everywhere. If you look at the makeup of it, though. Uh, it's, it's probably 40% U S, uh, 30%, um, United Kingdom. Okay. Excuse me. And then, um, the next major chunk is Canada. And then after that, it's kind of like a mix of, um, mostly European countries because racing is really, really big in Europe. Um, you know, Italy, Germany, uh, and then, you know, some peppering of, you know, different countries, but, uh, it's mostly concentrated in those three. 
Uh, I think that's by and large just because that's where we've heavily invested into, you know, advertising and content. I think if we really wanted to like crack the German market, I think that like we could do it um, when the timing was right, uh, but uh, definitely not uh, immediate focus. So you, so you are advertising in all of those different countries? Uh, in, user... the, in, the, in the three that I mentioned, yeah. Okay. We, we, well, I'll just say we have. We're not currently doing it. Um, we, we don't spend a lot on media um, these days, usually at the beginning of the season to kind of get, um, you know, a, 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 a bump in new users and kind of expand the audiences when we find that to be most successful. But typically through the remainder of the year, we actually don't advertise okay. at all. So I mentioned earlier, like nightmares of building software. Like number yeah. two on my list then has to be like language localization. That had to be a big well, so that's, nightmare that's, for you too. That's like that's very much a future problem. So I mean, okay. luckily, luckily the the three places that we that I mentioned that we're live in like very English dominant uh, okay countries, and so we haven't had to deal with that. And every now and then, you know, we'll get some user that emails us from um, you know somewhere in France or like somewhere in South America that's responding in some other language. And once we convert it, it's usually them swearing at us about, you know, why we, <laughs> why we don't have it in English and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think like language localization, if that's a problem that we ever have to solve, things are going to be going very, very well for us <laughs> because, you know, if we have to build a application that's unique to, um, you know, a specific country for the purposes of language, I think that that means, um, expansion plans have, have gone quite well. So, uh, certainly a future problem, definitely not one that we've, uh, have had to deal with at this point. Yeah, definitely. As you look to continue to grow, right. That'll be a, a big blocker. Like, well, we can't grow into these countries cause sure. we don't, don't support the language. And for, for those that are listening that don't know, like you go to use the software and say in India, they flip the, uh, commas and decimal points. Yeah, for sure. They're, I mean, they're backwards, and and, and, and there's there's so many other issues too. I mean, the 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 types of phones they use, and I mean, it's just you the, you're having to optimize for so many different yeah. and and unique situations that it's not like, iPhones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of Android. It's a lot of phone brands that in the yeah. United States we've never even heard of. So, um, oh yeah, it's tough. It's that would be a very tough market. It's actually a market where fantasy sports has been very very successful. So. It's probably one that at some point we're going to consider. Um, I think also in that bucket, that's one of the big challenges, just currency, right? Um, yeah. You know, and reconciling. If you want to have a pool-based game and you want people from the United States and from the UK, and let's throw in another one, call it India, to all be able to join the same pool that has, right. you know, pay different all currency. those. And, yeah, very, very complex on the ledgering side and, and reconciliation side. So that's have fun with that, those exchange rates changing every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's actually a problem we're in the midst of thinking about for a UK launch. Well, and so how do you deal with the legal part of it in all those countries? I mean, yeah, though, do you have to block another... certain countries. You're like, Oh, you can't, can't use it in India or whatever. Do you have that too? Yeah, for sure. So that's done kind of at the app store level. Um, both app stores allow you to, you know, deliver to, to certain countries. And then, we also go a level deeper, so we we use um, a, a geo-based um, targeting technology uh, called XPoint. And one of the things you'll see if you ever log in in the United States and you're trying to play cash game, you have to go through a pretty heavy verification process where we actually locate your coordinates on your phone using your phone's GPS to determine if you're in a state where 
you're eligible to actually play. Um, yeah. So there's kind of like two layers of location check that we utilize to ensure we're compliant with um, state and federal laws. Yeah, that's got to. Uh, well, I mean, it brings up a, a, another question for you is, do you have like a team that just deals with this like compliance kind of stuff? Do you have like an attorney or somebody that like they just have to constantly deal with these kinds of things? Um, I would say we, we have we have partners. Um, I don't we don't have anyone internally that's like, you know, we don't have a chief compliance officer or okay. we have that title filled. But like it's not someone's full time job yet. I think that's probably a further stages of growth. We'll definitely have to. Um, so we have both attorneys and we have a compliance agency that we work with that we have kind of regular calls with, um, yeah. that kind of fill the void and check the boxes that we need to check at a, as, as a ver- early stage startup. Um, but it is a significant barrier in this business to doing almost anything is, um, yeah. you know, you, you really have to be careful about, um, being applied with local laws and it's a process um, involves a lot of applications, lots of background checks, and it's kind of never ending. But um, the flip side, if you're looking at it from an optimistic point of view is it creates a lot of entry barriers for um, potential competitors to, to come into the space. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, I, I used FanDuel. I think I've really literally used it once for chiefs games because it became yeah. legal in the state of Kansas. And I did it and I bet on the Chiefs game or whatever. And I just happened to go to my dad's house to watch the game. Well, where I live, I'm I'm like l- less than half a mile to Missouri from my house. Yeah, right. So I go to my dad's house and then I can't load the app because right. I'm in Missouri. And it, you know, as you described it, you know, it's using the geolocation stuff. And so I couldn't actually use it when I was at my dad's house. So. That for for some people like me, that's crazy living between two states um, and different laws and all sorts. Yeah, of it's the it's the complexity of how our government runs with you know state by state regula- regulation. Um, not everything is is regulated federally. In the UK, it's very different. So, you know, we have a gambling license there, um, and it gives us access to the entirety of the United Kingdom with one license. Yeah. Versus here. Um, Including you know, Ireland and Scotland and all that kind of uh, stuff. It's, it's Great Britain is is what the license okay, is what just the license has okay. to target. So, um, but yeah, very very different market in the United States, and as a result, um, you know, very capital intensive uh, industry mm-hmm. to enter if you want to have market access in you know every single state where it's where it's possible. So, what is what does the future look like? What what's next for you guys? Yeah, I think um, kind of like. A couple of main categories, obviously expanding in, in di- into different sports so um, or different motorsports series, I guess is a better way of saying it. So currently on the game, um, we have season-long games for MotoGP and, um, and Formula One. Next season, we'll be adding NASCAR and IndyCar. On the paid side, um, we have NASCAR and Formula One. And we'll be adding some of the other sports, IndyCar as well. Um, and then, you know, as we grow, continuing to go down that funnel and solving that data problem we talk about and just onboarding more and more uh, different types of, of racing series that people can can participate with. Um, more um, more kind of gamification. Um, I think the, the experience is really, really important in this industry. The product is becoming more and more important. Um, I think the threshold for 
what was required of a successful product four years ago in the sports betting pace space when Passport was repealed is very different than it is. Um, I think there's, and there was a subset of audience that just, all they just want to do is they just want to place a bet, right? They don't necessarily care about the experience or, or how easy it is. And I think that's a small subset. I think the bigger subset of people are going to rely much more on the entertainment value that, that it creates. And so um, we have a lot of ambition for, new types of games we want to add, um, new, new ways that we want to engage the fan. So I think that's a big one. And then our ultimate goal, um, is to, to actually have our own sports book, um, which is an exponentially more difficult challenge in every single way, especially in the United States. It's more difficult from a compliance perspective. Um, it's just, it's, it's a lot of, uh, layers of complexity. And so that's probably maybe like a post series B, um, type goal for us. But th- those are, I'd say, kind of the three buckets that come to mind. That's awesome. Well, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the platform and the people to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, put in your requirements, and we will help you build a team. Um, the, the difference is we specialize in building a long-term team that only works directly for you. You'll learn more at FullScale.io. Well, I think it's been great um, talking to you today about this. Again, this is Ross Fruin with Grid Rival. Um, I always ask people on the way out, do you have any other final tips for other entrepreneurs out there? It could be about literally about anything. Oh, geez. Um, you know, I think I, there's like so many things that come to mind, but I think like the one thing that um, thinking about specifically in Grid Rival that I've seen over and over again in both my business and others is I think sometimes, um, you know, founders just need a level of grit and, um, staying power. There's just a lot of things that are going to not go your way. There's more things that won't go your way than will go your way. And, um, there's been a lot of times in this business where, uh, the outcomes didn't look very promising, but you have to be confident in your vision and your mission and, and your audience and the problem that you're solving, when those times come to be able to um, stick with it and be able to look forward and kind of just know that uh, the, the challenges are temporary. So um, I think resilience is a really, really important attribute of, yeah. of any great, of any great founder. My favorite word for that is tenacity. Yeah, for sure. That's one of my favorite words to describe it. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.